Welcome back to Podcasting the Urban, a five-part series where we turn the academic gaze back on to our own podcasting practice. I'm Dallas Rogers from City Road Podcast. In May 2018, City Road hosted a public panel discussion titled Podcasting the Urban, Notes from the Field, Sounds from the Studio. We recorded the panel discussion in front of a live audience in the City Road studios here at the University of Sydney. We plan to have two panellists in the room, Joel Sherwood-Spring and Nicola Joseph, but Lorna Munro was in the studio, so we gave her a mic at the last minute and we asked her to join the discussion. In the next two episodes, we'll bring you this panel discussion in two parts. Enjoy. Thank you so much. Okay, well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this very live recording of City Road Podcast. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this unceded land that we're meeting on today, the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation. And there's a very rich tradition of storytelling in this place, indeed, in this whole area, both old and new, which is being kept alive by people like Joel and Lorna, who are in the studio with us today. I'd also like to say hi to Huna, who is not in the studio right now, but I think will come back very soon. She is the executive producer of the show, The Survival Guide, which we'll talk about today. So my name is Dallas Rogers, and what I want to do today is explore what's at stake in podcasting the urban, and there might actually be more to this question than you realize, uh, especially for urban scholars. So ontologically, to use a very academic term, which I'm sure I'll get in trouble for in a minute, the sonic itself is a specific dimension of the urban, and sonic geographers have been investigating the sounds of our cities for actually a very long time. Just to give you a sense of what I'm talking about here, about the way that sound can play out in the city, just think about the way that ultrasound can be medicalized for the management of childbirth or sound can be weaponized as sonic weaponry for urban planning. So there's a politics to the way that sound and city come together, and we want to explore some of that politics today through the politics of podcasting the urban. And I guess there's three ways that academics are using podcasting. The first is in their teaching, so we're not going to say too much about that today. The second is as a research dissemination tool, and that's kind of what City Road Podcast is. And the third is as a research method, and I want to talk a little bit about that today. Welcome to the show, Nicola, Joel, and Lorna. Thank you. Thanks, Dallas. Now, I doubt that you would call yourselves urban researchers, but you are all working on projects that include radio and urban questions. So what I would like to do is just play a very quick clip of your show, The Survival Guide, and then I might get you to tell me about what the aim of this show is and how you came to uh, get involved in The Survival Guide. So just a quick clip of The Survival Guide show. I'm going to get a little bit nerdy and I'm going to ma- I'm going to make this a little bit more academic at the moment because I think this is something that I hold very close to myself when I think about what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to open up with a little Edward Said quote. Um, I mean, the main, bar- the main battle with colonisation is over land, of course. But when it comes to who owned the land, who had the right to settle and work on it, who kept it going, who won it back, who now plans its future... 
These issues were reflected, contested, and even for a time decided in narrative. The power to narrate or to block narratives from forming and emerging is very important. And that's what we're trying to do here on the show. The Survival Guide is trying to mobilize a narrative that is outside of the normal discourse of, oh, well, you know, gentrification is just cafes. It's just... It's 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 just places being being made a little bit nicer to be in and a little bit little bit more to our taste. But mm. whose taste are those? It's good for you. Don't you want nice new streets and a nice new home? Um, you know, and those kind of things are what we're fed all the time. Um, that t- totally reduces dispossession mm, um, exactly. and totally um, minimizes the history of dispossession in this country and how our people have been moved and moved and moved on. Joel, let's start with you. You looked a bit um, embarrassed there when we were playing that clip. Uh, tell us a bit about where you grew up and how you came to this project. Um, yeah. Um, no, it's just hearing my own voice. It's kind of funny. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I grew up in Sydney. I mean, I was born here um, and I grew up in Redfern. I mean, I went to Marowina, um, so did Lorna, which is a, um, a kindergarten that's on the block. And uh, we kind of spoke about that a little bit um, in last week's podcast, but we're going to talk about it a lot more um, tomorrow. I think um, we might have an episode just all about education, just looking into where a lot of the plans mm. for building a new purpose um, city high school as well. Um, and I think a lot of people don't realise how much money and has been spent on amalgamating and getting rid of all of the schools that have existed in this area for hundreds of years. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I think we're going to go further into that in a, maybe have a whole episode. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So yeah, Lorna and I um, got together talking about this sort of stuff about a year or two ago and just really like hit it off. I think we just kind of came from, we, we realised we, that we were kind of coming from the same place with the kind of similar mentality, even the different kind of backgrounds in terms of, I mean, Lorna's a poet, uh, I'm studying, I'm finishing my studies in architecture, uh, but both of us being Indigenous from and, and, and being able to experience um, things that have really enriched and kind of given us a strong sort of foundation in our lives, w- watching these things now change. Um, dramatically and, and, and incrementally um, across kind of the city is, is what we kind of, yeah, we wanted to talk about that. We wanted to kind of investigate that further and have a, have a real conversation about it with other people. And we are in the School of Architecture, so I have to ask you, how does architecture and your architectural training play out in what you're doing in this radio show? If at all. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like, it's kind of a lot and also... I mean, there's also a lot of unlearning. Um, Tell us about the unlearning of to steal a Sydney Uni tagline at the moment. Mm, mm. Um, well, I mean, it's it's unlearning what you were kind of fed when you enter this institution. Um, I mean, we're not we're not provided with. I'm, I've I've only started my masters here at UCID this semester, so I'm not going to say what I don't know, but I mean, I studied my undergrad at UTS and I've heard this from a lot of other people in a lot of institutions across Australia. And it's not surprising that we're not given, um, any sort of, um, information or really a constructive history, um, outside of the very like structured Western narrative. And that's like, that's, I think that we're all very aware that that's how kind of the narrative of history has formed. Um, but there are now lots of people who are making, waves and really interesting stuff about 
kind of what it means to be Indigenous in the city, but what it means to be Indigenous and practising in ideas of architecture and spatial design in Australia. And there's none of that. And so this is kind of talking to a part, a part of that. I mean, architecture kind of intersects with everyone's life every day. And that's why I think it's interesting in what we're doing. I mean, Lorna and I kind of got into contact through some of the stuff that was happening down in Waterloo um, last year and some of the programs that we were trying to get off the ground. I mean, there's a lot of other faces here who were a part of that stuff. Um, Tell us a little bit about what is happening down there on the ground. Um, in a nutshell, you know, you can whip through it in 30 seconds, I'm sure. <laughs> nomination for a... Um, what state significant precinct the Waterloo Metro Station has put the public land of the Waterloo Public Housing Estate up for grabs. Um, so there, I mean, and that speaks to the large-scale sell-off of public land that we are currently experiencing um, in the New South Wales government so that land and housing and other things can stay afloat because we don't believe in welfare anymore. Um, all those things, yeah. Mm. Lorna, what do you think's going on down there at the moment? Oh, it's just um, I find I find it fascinating how uh, white culture will value white history, but if it's um, attached to an Aboriginal narrative, it's no longer valuable. Is what it seems. Um, what's going on down there is just basically very much what's been happening since um, invasion. Um, it's just another dispossession. It's another land grab. It's another move on. Mm. You're a poet, and I'd like to play you a little bit of poetry and see what you think about it. It's a clip from Anja from the University of Wollongong, who's actually using podcast as a research method, working with the Fijian Poetry Workshop. And I'll play that clip for you now and get you to reflect on the role of, that poetry might play in, in radio and in storytelling. I, I am a Fijian. I'm a storyteller. I am a Fijian storyteller. But today, I bury a library of stories I'll never learn to retell. See, stories in my culture are like books. There are stories of our shape-shifting gods who take the form of sea creatures or birds so that children don't fear the sea or the jungle. There are stories of how a certain leaf can heal cuts and bruises, which ones cure coughs and the ones that are poison. See, our stories are our history. The Westerners took it and called it myths and legends. We have constantly told our stories through the generations, stories of gods and heroes, open ocean voyaging using stars for navigation, wars fought, wars lost, paths of demigods, origins of tribes, our relation from tribe to tribe, which trail, which rivers our clan crossed to be where they are now, the meaning of our village names, the time when the first roads were built, stories of who had the first concrete house in the village, stories of our kin going overseas for education, and till today, our stories of the not-so-distant past are still being told to eager ears listening around mats under the breadfruit tree. The stories that you will hear today are stories about cyclones. They are stories of people, of lands and of oceans, of sadness and hope, of anger and resistance. 
These stories take the shape of four poems, written by poets, artists, and a scientist from the poetry shop Fiji. Christelle Lavaki, Atueta Rambuka, Amelia Rigsby, and Peter Sipelli. Warner, what do you think the role of storytelling and poetry is in creating narratives about the city? I, I think it's just um, a new kind of rebranded version of what our people have been doing here for many, many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, which is... Um, mapping the narratives, um, which is basically what our song lines are. It's, it's um, mapping and connecting each narrative and telling a wider framework and uniting those voices that we're all saying the same thing in slightly different dialects. Um, and when I think about it, I'm always thinking about it within Aboriginal uh, methodologies um, and epistemologies. Um, and I'm always thinking about within language because I'm also an educator as well. Um, so a lot of the stuff that I've been working on is spoken word poetry um, versus published poetry, um, Radjuri language versus English language. How do we get to that point, which actually involves a lot of unlearning, um, which has been mentioned here as well. And a lot of people get caught up in that unlearning English because if you're going to learn any language in the world, you have to actually unlearn English, mm. um, if that's what you've learnt first. And English is one of the hardest languages to actually master. Um, you know, one example that I've always been given is that in Spanish you can say I love you in seven different ways. In English it's only one. And I think that limits us a lot. Mm. Nicola, what do you think about poetry as a way of creating knowledge about the city? Well, I think, you know... Uh, as part of the kind of storytelling of the city, I mean, if you just look at the three of us as an example, you know, even, okay, we've come together to do this podcast about, and I only came into it because um, my daughter, Hannah, who's the producer, was away and she asked me to fill in for her for a couple of weeks. And after about, I think, the second or third time we met up, I knew Lorna and I um, but I didn't really know Joel that well. We I discovered that I knew their parents, like that they knew both their mothers, and that in fact um, their mothers were part of the generation of I guess storytellers that came out of Radio Redfern and Radio Skid Row, which we started just two doors down, tell, three tell doors us about down. That. Tell us about that history. Yeah. Uh, Radio Skid Row. Okay. Um, Radio Skid Row. In five minutes or less. <laughs> in, in, well, I'll try in, in very short time. Um, I was um, running a newsroom at 2SER at UTS. We were up on the 26th floor. And one day the manager brought in an Aboriginal guy um, who was going to be the Aboriginal trainee in the newsroom. And it was um, a guy came called Tiger Bales. His mum was Maureen Watson, a poet as well and storyteller. And they were doing 15 minutes a week at um, 2SER and were quite frustrated, I guess, that people in the community weren't just wandering in to be part of the show. I mean, on the 26th floor of UTS, it was hardly likely. Um, and so we also, we, we kind of sat up there and, and had this dream of setting up something that would be more accessible, I guess. And uh, that was when the licences for smaller suburban-based stations became available. And so... We didn't actually get the licence. I was just invited to be a trainer to teach people how to do radio, um, but was kind of really the, the kind of person sent ahead 
to start the infiltration um, because the group that started the station were actually welfare workers and had very different ideas about what the station would be. But um, by the time the licence actually was granted, we'd basically taken over the group and it was an amazing collection of people, including um, a really strong big contingent of people from the um, Indigenous community in Redfern, but also um, migrant railway workers, because the railway yards were still there, um, would come down, knock off from their shift and come down and do shows um, in Macedonian, Serbian, Croatian. Um, lots, of, lots of the liberation movement students from the unis were all parts of you know the anti-apartheid movement, um, at the station still runs. It's the longest-running African show in Australia, I guess. It's still in the same time slot. Um, and we really wanted to shift things away from... Um, I mean, in the most basic sense, it was about self-representation was, I guess, one of our things, but it was also about engagement. And this predated, of course, um, all the talk we have about engagement with media now, with new media. But it was really about, like, how do we create spaces that people can just drop in on? And so things like if you go to Skid Row now, which is at Marrickville, you'll notice that, all oh, right, the studio doors can just be opened and it's almost part of the same room as the room you walk into. Um, like, questions of accessibility were really strong. Um, we found that at Wentworth Building, we're in the basement of the Wentworth Building. I'm not sure what's what's there now. Um, Someone might know in the room. I think it's some kind of hub or innovative hub or something. I don't know. You that know, sounds right. Everything's, <laughs> everything's an innovative hub these days, isn't it? But what was interesting was, like, we actually had a blackout on Thursdays and Friday, on Thursdays and Saturdays when Blackfellas went to air. This was the first time in Australia that, in an urban area anyway, that um, there was even it was even conceived that they should do more than one hour, right? That Indigenous people we actually said no, we want thirty hours to begin with, and um, Thursdays and Saturdays were blackouts, and no non-Indigenous people were allowed in the station. We were quite Friday was Women's Day, no men were allowed in the station, and um, and only black fellas could answer the phone and so forth, just so that the first point of contact was always blackfellas. The shows were becoming incredibly popular, but still no one was just dropping in. So that was when we squatted a house in Cope Street, Redfern, which is where Corey Radio sits today. It was two terraces and we built a studio out in the back room and fixed it up and we even laid some fairly fancy concrete floors to stop the vibration from the railway station. And we started, I, I guess, inspired by Stephen Biko and Black Consciousness Movement in South Africa because we had people from South African liberation movements at the station being inspired to sort of like set up other things that would attract people in. And so soup kitchen, you know, there was always soup on the on the stove. There was always something to eat and a cup of tea. And, and it worked. It was magical, really. And... Meanwhile, the rest of the station was stayed at Wentworth Building and that was all the non-Indigenous people. Um, we had really kind of quite confronting decolonisation workshops um, back in the 80s and um, we coordinated the march really in 1988 through the radio um, of all the thousands of people that came from all over the country. So, you know, I mean, that 
I, I think that kind of the beauty or the wonderful thing about Skid Row and its spirit is that it was really founded around the project of trying to support Indigenous radio, which of course has ended in the cities getting radio licences because, once again, that wasn't really being thought of by the government. Um, and in Sydney, we've got Koori Radio sitting right where we started. We squatted those buildings, which is kind of sweet. Mm. How does the survival guide fit into that story, if it, if at all? To me, like I have to get back to this generational thing. Like it's to me more than anything to watch my daughter, right, and then Lorna and Joel, and and to sit at home and listen to them when they went to air for the first time. Um, it was kind of the best feeling that I have had in a very long time. And I haven't actually said this to either of you. I'm sorry. Um, but, you know, because this is the first I've seen them since they went to air. But, um, you know, it's just the best example of how all of the hard work of both Lorna and Joel's mum and myself and my generation has paid off. And, you know, it's a relief to see some evidence of that because so often I think um, the stories of the last 30 years are the ones that are lost, um, 30 or 40 years maybe. Mm. Um, like we know a fair bit of about sort of early days, but we, we actually don't know much about the struggles, even the ones that we had in media for, for getting um, media happening. Um, they're not well documented most of Radio Redfern, I've got a few tapes that people salvaged and Skid Row's early days, they've gone. There hasn't been a lot of documentation around um, those movements that were largely inspired by the international movements like Black Panther and, like I mentioned, Black Consciousness Movement. So for me to, to watch this next generation and actually see, okay, here's three people who actually have learnt from that and now they're taking it further, it was very, very clear. Um, and also on the topic of what you're discussing today, I think kind of um, their intellectual approach to the subject is like just mind boggling, really. <laughs> These two are, are very special. And, and I, I mean, I'm that you both, I mean, they're both incredibly knowledgeable and, and well-informed and articulate and really, so they should be. If you knew their mothers... And their aunties and, <laughs> and all of them. I mean, I was taking children to Marowina when they were there um, every day from the Skid Row families of um, the community. And so, you know, I actually remember Lorna's mum being pregnant when she was having Lorna. In fact, I was having Hannah at the same time. So these are the 88 children mm. who um, are really born of that time and place and politics. So it's exciting. You're listening to the Podcasting the Urban series. For the second part of our discussion with Joel, Lorna and Nicola, upload episode three now. For guest biographies, head over to our website at cityroadpod.org. And if you haven't downloaded the series yet, you can find it on your podcast app. Just search for Podcasting the Urban. You're listening to City Road on 2SER 107.3 FM in Sydney. I'm Dallas Rogers.